Um, it's a more literary work, far more literary. Virgil is a more literary poet. He's writing it, Homer told it. Um, the copies that we have were written down. So Homer is more primitive. He, he's speaking out of an oral tradition. His language is more um, ordinary. Virgil is educated. You, you can see that he, it's going to be remarkable when you, when you read it because you'll recognize you know, the, the epithets and the similes are more elaborate, more worked. Um, but you'll, you'll see Homer in it, but you'll also recognize that this is a poet who has a much more literary sense of things. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit harder to read. Now, here we are, first week of November. November. This is our second meeting on the Odyssey. We will have two more. So next week, well, I have to ask, I have to ask you about something. Next week and the following week, that takes us to, does anybody have a count? I should have worked this out. Yeah. That, that takes us to when? This is Monday, so two This months. is Monday the 16th. Then it's the 9th and the 16th. And the 16th. So here's what we're looking at. If we finish the Odyssey on the 16th, we can have a wrap-up and put the world, the Homeric world together, or we can go on, or we can postpone it, because to do four weeks of the Aeneid from, what is it? This, did you say that? It'd be the 23rd. 23rd. Which is the same week as Thanksgiving. It's a week of Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. So if we started Aeneid then, it would be um, squeezing us in with Thanksgiving and the holidays and Christmas. So um, we can start it and stop, which I don't think is the best of ways of doing it. Or we can wait. I don't know. Do you guys want to continue? Do you want to go on the, the Aeneid? I'm, I mean, you're here, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. So if we go on with the Aeneid, my suggestion would be that we pick up like the first week of January or something like that. I and, think that's good. And do yeah, that way. Yeah. do four weeks of Aeneid, Aeneid, and that will bring us to the Divine Comedy. And my own feelings about that is it, it would not make, we would not get everything out of the Commedia that we could get out of it if we tried to do it in four weeks. I've been squeezing it already to, to do these works in four weeks. But you know, you're not. It's not a. It's not a college class. It's we're a church group, and it's a different spirit. Um, we could spend six weeks easily on each of these books and, and do them better. I. It seems to me we're we're trying to get to the center of our faith. So, but to do the comedian four weeks to me, I I wouldn't want to do it. So my own intention when we get to that point would be to spend something like six weeks on the Divine Comedy so that we would spend two weeks on each canticle, the Inferno, the Pur Purgatory, the Paradiso. And I think we could do as good a job in the Commedia in two weeks with each canticle as we're doing on these. It's still pressed, but um, I think you can read each of those. You can read the Inferno easily in, it's easy. It's an easy read, like this. It's an easy read. It's complicated. It's very, very complicated. He, he's going through all these levels, so there's so much to to hold on to. I'm not expecting you to hold on to it, but you should find that it's a good story, and and as you read, you enjoy it. There's a lot to hold on to, but I don't think you'll get hung up on facts the way you would with the um, Iliad. So I think we can do the Divine Comedy in six weeks. 
and then stop, and then at that point, I, I'm just gonna ask everybody, do you wanna go on to the modern works or not? You know, what, however, whatever anybody wants to do. That's my suggestion right now. Do you guys have, what, what are your, do you have any? About next week, because we're having the CIA guy come that's, and talk yeah, about the that's the other. Catholicism and Islam. Let me wait on that. Are you, <laughs> just on what I've said, do you, are you okay with that? Okay. So we'll 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 do that. We'll plan to do that. Um, so that's our plan. Even we may have to make some changes, but roughly we'll just hold. If we have to make some changes. We can make them as things come up. But that's what we'll set out to do. And the the purpose is to get through. Not to get through. To, to make these things a part of our lives, to, right. to get Virgil in us, and get ready for Dante, mm -hmm. which, which will bring that whole past and transform it in a Catholic <coughs> vision. So that, that will bring us more immediately to our faith and, um, and the way in which this whole world is a part of who we are as Catholic, what it means to be a Catholic. Okay, so we'll do that. Everybody, okay. Here's the problem for next week. Next Monday, this we have a visitor speaker who's going to be talking about, um, I guess, the differences between Islam and Catholicism. I don't know if, if you guys are interested in in attending that. Um, I am. Or so we should cancel this or go ahead. Who wants to Who wants to attend that lecture on Islam and? We're going to go to your Saturday, to your Friday. Can you all make the Friday? No. Here's my concern. I don't. I don't want the two classes are in sync. Yeah. I'm taping them, and I don't want to. I don't want to get them out of sync with each other. It won't matter, Robert, because this is the first one. So then it would just be the second one. But it'll just. It'll pass. It'll delay it for a week. Um, it. I mean, it doesn't matter in a great way, but. Um, yeah, I can't be there normally on Friday. Morning. You can't. Uh -uh. Yeah. And you guys can't either. Okay. Um, I can go on Friday. But that didn't help everybody else. Let's do this if we can. Let's let's if you all can come to the Friday it would be great. It would just it would well, simplify. Friday, Friday is the, would be the next the the, one, the the same it would be for next Monday. Right. Next for Friday. A week from yeah. this Friday. Because so this this Friday um, I'll be doing the second class on this class. Uh, this class, right. Okay. They're never the same. They're never the same. They're never the same. They're never the same. Anyway, and by the way, you all know that these things are being recorded and put online so that if you do miss a class, you can't. Yeah, you should. If you go to the church thing under catechism, there's a section for our class, and they're being downloaded. Did you start it, Don? I did. Both of them? They're both gone. Okay. All this out. Um, so instead of the ninth, it would be the thirteenth, right? Can I do this? Can all can all of the rest of you make it on Friday? If you can, this not not this Friday, week from Friday. The week from that'll it would be the thirteenth. That'll be our third thirteenth, right? That'll be our third week on the Odyssey. Okay. Can I take a minute with the two of you after class tonight and see if we can't find? A time when the two of you can make it, and I'll just make it and go over 
what we're doing, take an hour with you guys if we can find it. Um, right in my own evaluation, my own judgment about the Odyssey, the, the, the most remarkable thing that Homer did, you, you already know my reading of the Iliad and how remarkable I think it is. What he's doing in the Odyssey, to me, goes way beyond what he does in the Iliad. I, I, I mean, to me, when I look at modern psychology and what the sciences would do with it, and look at what Homer's doing with this and the, the adventures, the, the, what I'm going to... What I'm going to present is the world of the unconscious, the, the, the deeper metaphysical levels. What Dante shows us in the... Dante learned from Homer and Virgil. This is the unconscious. This is the interior of our soul. He's laying it bare for all those things that are not pleasant to see about what's underneath us. When we get underneath the surface of things, that's what he's showing. And to me, it's far more profound than anything I'm aware of in modern psychology. So it's not a small thing. It's really, really important. In my, in my view. So I would be sorry if anybody were to miss this. It's all going online. You can get it there. Um, but what I'd like to do at least is see if we can, if you can wait a few minutes, can you both? Mm -hmm. And see if we can find a time and, and we'll meet and, and we'll just have a class between us. Can you move the board that way? I can't this see way? it and I'm assuming Jane can't see it. Can you all see me now? The things in my way. Now move your podium this way. <laughs> hey, you guys fussy. fussy. <laughs> I hope this stuff is helpful to you. I hope the board is the board helpful. Mm -hmm. Is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <coughs> okay. Um, um, let's see. We have a problem. Can you all take out? Jones Very. I'm just going to read one of his poems tonight. Jones Very lived in the 19th century. He was one of he was one of the friends. You all know what that means. One of the Quakers. Mm -hmm. He was one of the friends. That was his religion. He 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 was a pacifist. He believed in the inner light deeply. Very much committed to the Quaker religion. The friends. He was a close friend of the transcendentalist of um, Emerson and Thoreau and, and um, I can't remember the other man, Brown, Orestes Brownson, or somebody whose name I'm forgetting. Um, um, and he was somewhat mocked by them. Um, Jones very believed in the, um, in, the, in the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the inner light of God. Mm -hmm. And so he lived that way. Um, Emerson would mock him and, and, and tell him to touch the mantelpiece when he visited, and then would mockingly ask him if God made him do that. Because his various beliefs seemed to imply denial of free will. Um, um, I have nothing but contempt myself for Emerson. I think he's, I think he's one, of the, one of the most dangerous figures of the 19th century. This theory of self-reliance and to your own self the true is, I mean, it, it's the way in which the, the Protestant religion had, at that point, um, been conceptualized. The, the, if, you, if you know anything about the 19th century, you know that in the 19th century, the, the Protestant religion in the Eastern Seaboard, which was vital for a century and a half, is in decline. 
it, it's becoming conceptualized. People are no longer living according to Calvin or Luther. Um, they're finding those doctrines inhuman. And, um, and the whole movement in the Protestant culture is towards a secularized code, towards respectability. Emerson is one of the leaders of that group. It's, it, the Christianity is very much intellectualized, and he, he professes a belief in Unitarianism. That belief, if you know anything about it, is a belief in one God, no Trinity. They deny the Trinity. They don't look at Christ as God. And so it's a radical departure from the Protestant belief on which that whole culture was based. So the 19th century is in crisis. Hawthorne and Melville, if we get there together, I don't know where you want, but Mel, Hawthorne, Scarlet Letter, and Melville's Moby Dick, to me, are the, are the two most serious critiques of that, the, the most profound understanding of the crisis in the 19th century that we have. Um, <clears throat> both of them were critical of Emerson because both Melville and Hawthorne believed in what they called the brotherhood of sin. That we are joined together in sin, and they looked at Emerson as, as espousing a philosophy that put themselves above sin. This is this sort of cavalier intellectualized intellectualization of religion. Um, Jones Berry was on the outside of that group. He, the transcendentalists believed in this transcendental life, but it was very intellectualized. Um, Very has his roots in Christianity, believes very much in the Holy Spirit, and was, was an extraordinary poet. And he's not recognized today. If you look at the poetry in the 19th century, you're not likely to come across his poetry. It's just not there. I discovered him in a book by Ivor Winters, who is one of the, has had one of the most profound influences in my life as, a, as somebody loving literature. I can't even begin to describe the effect he's had on me. I first came across Jones Very Holmes in a book of his on American literature. And the first time I read it, I was knocked over by it. So, not well known, a Quaker, um, um, not, um, not a popular poet, but he's writing from within Christianity at a time when Christianity is seriously in decline. And, and he has the independence of mind to, to create with a religion that's creative at its source. I mean, if anybody looks at it seriously, we should be saying, we should all be writing more poetry, but... Jones Berry, The Lost. <clears throat> this is a poem about the way in which people become so preoccupied with what he calls the toys of times, our preoccupations in this world with work or business or the things that, that we play with, that, that we make so important to us. But to him, um, our preoccupation with those things was a sign that we had ceased to become one with them. St. Thomas says over and over and over again, that love, we'll see this in Dante, that love is unity. To love another is to become one with that person. We become united. That's the nature of love. And that's not a figure of speech. It's quite literal. You become one. So the struggles of marriage, and Odysseus and Penelope becoming one here, is very much to the point here. Because I hope it's clear from my treatment of these homes that there's something missing in Nestor's marriage and something missing in Menelaus. We're looking, there's still good marriages. They're good marriages, but when we look at Odysseus and Penelope, we're going to see 
that there's something that man and woman is capable of, uh, that Homer shows us in this story. St. Thomas says love is unitive. Jones very believes it is in the spirit, that, that if we stood with each other the way we should, that, that we will become one with a Bert Hopkins in the bird, the wind hunter, that we will become one with those things that, that are in front of us. St. Thomas said, he put this, in the act of knowing, not just loving, in the act of knowing when the mind, this is so different from the modern because modern philosophies after Descartes and Kant and the rest are idealistic. They believe that what we know are ideas in our heads. That's why the modern mind is in its head, largely. All idealistic philosophies, the dominant philosophies of the modern world are idealistic. What we know are ideas, our own ideas. St. Thomas said, no, what we know are things, but we know them by means of the ideas, that the ideas are formed. When you say tree, we've got an idea of tree in our head, but that idea is a, is a, mental, a mental concept helping us to understand that thing. So Thomas would say, in the act of knowing, we become one with the thing known in the act of knowing. In that act, if we really know a thing, we become one with it. How radically different. When we get to Dante, you'll see, that's at the, at the heart of our faith. I mean, I don't think most Catholics live that way today, but that should be what we should be doing. Jones Perry was close to that. He's so aware that we are lost in time so we have ceased to become one with others. Notions that, that Emerson would have laughed at. So I'll let you, and I, you all are gonna go home and read these tonight, yes? Yes. <laughs> out loud, out loud. Remember, they're supposed to be read aloud, not in the silence of our heads, out loud. We are an incarnate people. We are supposed to be giving bodies to things. Jones Very, the Lost. The fairest day that ever yet has shone will be when thou that day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou will rejoice, and thou new risen midst these wonders live, that now to them does all thy substance give. We give to these things the wrong way, and we keep ourselves from being one with them. But in heaven, we won't be looking at each other as objects anymore, we will become one with those things. Aristotle said, the soul is in a way all things. We become them, we take them in. That's Aristotle. Thomas bases almost everything he does on, or so much of what he does on Aristotle. Let me read this one more time. Um, he's looking forward to the day when we will get past this place where we are, where we've forgotten ourselves, making too much of the world in the wrong way, so that we will become one with no longer using it for our egos, no longer being greedy or lustful or selfish, or that we will become one with those things in this life. 
The fairest day that ever yet has shone will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. But thou art far away amongst time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now thou hangest upon the stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And thou new risen midst these wonders live, that now to them does all thy substance give. I'll let you read the others, because I know you are going to. Okay, let's let's start. Um, I have a confession to make here. Originally, I had intended to devote this class to the wanderings and move on to the homecoming because it's only, it's, I think it's seven books devoted to the wanderings and there's um, several more than that in the homecoming so that it would have made more sense to divide the homecoming into two classes. But I, 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 I went over, I've been going over my notes the last couple of days and realizing there's just too far, far, far too much going on in the wanderings to squeeze this in. So what I'm going to do is try to cover what we can, I'm not sure how far we will get, and then pick up the wanderings again and get home next class, and then devote the fourth class to the resolution, all, everything that the whole book has been moving towards. But there's a, lot, there's a lot in the homecoming that prepares for what happens at the end, and I don't want to short shrift that, but I, but I seriously don't want to do an injustice to the middle part of this poem because to me, it's too extraordinary, and so I'd like to try to give it more time. So if we don't get through it tonight, don't be surprised. I'm, I'm not trying to get through it. Um, just very, very briefly, last time, we, um, I just gave you a, a, a brief outline of, of the Odyssey and said that the, that the theme of the, home, of the Odyssey is nostos, nostalgia. The, the longing to get home, and that that stands in contrast to Cleos. And it's going to become real interesting, really, in a minute. You're going to see something sort of amazing and what happens with Odysseus. This whole thing just amazes me. I'm in amazement right now. I hope I, hope I can stay coherent, or partly coherent, through our time together. It's a, that's its major theme, the homecoming. The whole action is to get home, and home clearly for Homer does not mean walls and roof. It means... You know, a, economia, the ordering of the household, and more than that, it means some possible union between a man and a woman. Because all of the cities that we, that we look at, the minds of men that Odysseus came to know, are going to be showing us things about the nature of man and woman. Some weeks ago, facetiously, I said to everybody, the, the Iliad, facetiously and truthfully, the Iliad offers us probably the most severe critique of the male ego that I'm aware of. Um, page after page, we keep seeing men boast of their accomplishments. They're trash-talking each other, what we call trash-talk today, putting each other down, boasting, wanting to show how good they are to defeat somebody else. 
how strong they were, their arrogance, their pride, their habit of self-justifying. Is there a scene in there in which a man's not justified him, particularly when Agamemnon says, I didn't do it, Zeus's. So the, the, the male warrior, the, the, the noble aspect of man is, is exposed for everything that's there. And we saw in what Achilles did was this break. Um, he's not God, he's not a Christian, but still what he does seems to be remarkable in view of the world that he's in. And I said at the same time that the Odyssey is going gonna, is gonna to offer us one of the most serious critiques of woman. And I think I told all the men to be sure they made it that night. <laughs> you're, you're the only one here, Bob. Uh, bless your soul. Um, so it's going to be, a, it seems to me, you have to be brave. The women are going to have to be really brave because there's a lot, there's a lot to see underneath the surface. I, I'm, I'm supposing most of you already know it. You're not young girls anymore. And you've, you know, you've had a life to look at these things. Um, the nice thing about Homer is that he exposes this, but it's in an adventure that's moving towards something better. And what I'm going to say um, over and over and over again in our time together is everything that happens, he leaves Troy. Um, he, he goes on all of his adventures. When he comes to Thrinachia, we'll get to that in a minute, the ship is cracked, he loses, crash, he loses all of the, his companions. And he swims ashore to the island of Bohesia where Calypso is. And it's here that he spends eight years. And finally, Hermes, you know, comes at the beginning of the book to set him free. Um, he sets off. Um, he is almost killed at sea, like Achilles was almost killed in that, in that ocean, in the water. And um, he will come to the Phaeacians at Scaria. And there he will tell the story of all the adventures that took place in leaving here. And what I'm going to maintain, and I think you'll see the sense of this, it's absolutely essential that he face every one of these mysterious underworld creatures, these strange, fantastical creatures, if he's to get home. He will not get home if he doesn't learn to deal with all of these, which is to say, he will not get home unless he learns to come to terms with all the things that are in him and in women. He's got to learn to understand himself, and he's got to learn to understand human nature, or he will not have the life with Penelope that I think Homer is showing us is possible between a man and a woman. That's how serious this is. Anybody who wants to leave can leave right now. This is pretty, for me, it's pretty remarkable. Um, okay. Um, <coughs> I didn't get these up on the board, um, but the the, um, the the themes for tonight are going to be um, the prophecies here and reading. The two are not, in my mind, separable. Um, they're absolutely interlinked. It becomes clear that most people do not hear, they do not read well, which means they, they do not grasp the God speaking to them, whether it's the God speaking to them directly or through human beings. 
I mentioned last time that, that one of the things that Homer's showing us is that God speaks through human beings and we should be paying attention to what we say to each other, what we hear from people. Because you know that the gods take on the likenesses of people. Mm -hmm. Mentes makes a prophecy to Telemachus, he brushes it off. Mentor makes a prophecy to him, he brushes it off. The suitors are scornful, they're full of contempt, they're not brushing it off. Um, they don't listen to the gods at all. So prophecies um, and language and reading are crucial. I want to look at um, the tag for Odysseus, long-suffering Odysseus, and the importance of suffering for the hero in this book, and the, um, and the adventures. And the two other categories that I'd like to look at, that we won't look at tonight, but it would be good to put them down, are the differences between the male and female psyche between the masculine and feminine? The difference between the male and female psyche? And finally, um, the effort that Odysseus makes to reflect on his voyages when he tells the story. It's, a, in, it's an effort of self-reflection, to reflect back, to tell a story on something is to distance yourself from it in order to understand it more completely. So this act of self-reflection here, of telling the stories, reveals this whole inner world, what I'm going to call the unconscious, the, the mythic underside of all of our lives. That unless he, unless he goes beneath the surface of things to see what's really there, he cannot get home. He cannot be the person he's given to be. So that's our... That's our work. Um, I'd like to try to, to do these next week, but, but to try to tackle this stuff here, the prophecies and the adventures tonight. So let me start there. Um, very quickly, I want to just remind you of the prophecies. Some of them we, we, we experienced last week. Athena comes to Telemachus um, in two different forms in the Telemachi, remember in the first four books. She comes as Mentes and tells him that, that his father is coming home. And as mentor, she tells him um, that he's coming home. He's negative. He tends to dismiss it. He doesn't believe such a thing is possible. Um, we learn from Menelaus um, and his stories about Proteus, the old man of the sea, that there are a number of prophecies given that Odysseus is at sea and he will come home. Um, we have prophecies from Hermes. This is in Book 5. I'm just going to give you these quickly because I, I don't want to take any time. Book 5, line 112. We get a prophecy from Circe, Book 10, line 490, and following Book 12, line 37, following. When Odysseus gets to the land of the dead and speaks to Tiresias, he gets a prophecy from him about his ultimate end. That's in Book 11, line 90. Um, 120 following. When they come to the island of Helios, they get another prophecy. And towards the end, um, when Telemachus is on his way home, he picks up a fugitive named Theoclymenos. And he gives a prophecy. It, to me, it's one of the re most remarkable prophecies in the whole thing. It's actually the same wording that we get from Helios about the eating of the cattle. And it's at that moment when the suitors are about ready to eat the cattle. Um, those are some of the more 
sort of obvious ones that are just make up a part of the story. Um, there are a couple that are more important because they bear directly on Odysseus and his experiences with people and his coming home. Calypso says, when Hermes comes to free Odysseus, it's not appointed for him to die here. She knew that. So we know that Odysseus, as much as he stuck there, was meant to leave. The Cyclops, Polyphemus, was given a prophecy that one day somebody would hurt him. He knows it's coming, and he's completely confused when Odysseus comes. That is, he didn't take it seriously enough. So he's shocked and suddenly realizes that the prophecy had been given a long time ago has now come to be. The Phaeacians, I mean, I, I want to point these, the Phaeacians and Sherry and Cyclops. The Phaeacians were told ages ago that something would happen concerning them, and it, I'll come to that. And it comes to pass. So um, Odysseus, in one way, is an instrument for bringing about suffering to other people he engages with. He helps realize a prophecy through the suffering that he brings. And there are rich implications of that we're going to come to in a minute. But it's just, there are all these prophecies that come from other people but here are prophecies given to these, these people involving something about to come that's going to come to pass. And they don't know when. In some ways, I think we're meant to, to see that they take it for granted. And then suddenly it happens, and they're left suffering. And then they remember, I was told this would happen. And it does. And Odysseus is the agent for bringing that about. So over and over and over again, these prophecies come true. The gods are watching. They can see ahead of time. Remember this thing about the novel and the, the Bakhtin talk, that there are all these things that seem determined, so it belongs to this past where everything's fixed? Well, we can look at it that way. We can look at it in another way, too, that there are prophecies. And in some sense, what happens is meant to show us that um, they come to pass in the present. So they're just like the prophecies of Christ coming, who comes to be, who brings an order of reality into the present that wasn't there before. But Odysseus is doing that in this world. In the Old Testament, it's predicted that the Messiah will come. So there was a prophecy in the Old Testament yes, yes. to say it's going to happen. Yes. Then it happened. Yes, 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 yes. The peril is there. Um, um, this whole element of reading that's related to prophecies, how well do people, how well do we, how well do we as humans hear? How well do we see? How well do we read? You know for me that I believe we, we don't read very well. We, we, we tend to get fixed in our own mind and tend to see things that way and I don't think typically as human beings we're very open. Aristotle said, um, Wonder is the beginning of wisdom. That when we wonder about things, when we ask questions, we learn. We were meant to learn. So the starting point for learning is wonder. When we get adult and grown up, and we think we have all the answers and we're smart, <laughs> we are our worst enemies. 
um, Homer showing us is that wonder should be a part of our life, that the gods are all around us, you know, doing amazing things, that we should be continuing to wonder, standing in wonder, and however we live. Um, so this question of reading, how well do we read, how well do we see? Remember I told you before that, um, that fools, I'm going to joke on myself to tell you in a second when I can, if I can find this thing. Um, remember, fools, the word for fools, the, the Greek word for fool is napios. So think about this for a second, what we've been doing with language together from the very beginning. Just for a quick review, epi, the word epic, remember, means word. Epos, epic, epoch, epic, means word, but it's a divine word. The poet opens himself to the speaking of the, of the word, the, the God is speaking to him. So a whole divine perspective is brought into our world. So a, world, a word that we pass off, epic, it's just a story, is really an inspiration. It's a divine, it's a divine revelation. Suffering I'm going to come to, nabios, the Greek, nabios, means fool. And I said last time that the word nabios in Greek means childlike, can't read, can't understand. When Odysseus tells the Cyclops, my name is nobody, remember the Cyclops has got one eye. I mean, that's a key. He's literal-minded. He, he is an image of the literal-minded mind wherever we find him. And we have lots of them in more. Lots of them in our cultures. So, um, napios means childlike, cannot use words, cannot grasp language. We're going to go through some other words right now, but I want to start with long suffering Odysseus. Because we keep coming across that tagline again and again and again in the book. Long suffering Odysseus. Suffering, we usually think about suffering in a number of ways. I think we have to distinguish between grades of suffering. There's physical suffering. When we scratch ourselves or wound ourselves or get sick. Um, if you're anything like I am, when I get a cold, um, if, if, my, if my kids went around calling me a wuss, they'd probably be pretty accurate. Um, there's physical suffering that we have all the time if we prick something or if a child, you know, cuts himself. That's a form of suffering. It's a physical kind of suffering. There are two kinds of suffering that to me are greater than that. One of them is anguish. It's mental anguish. Um, it comes from anxieties and emotional, emotional disturbances. The word anguish comes from the old French anguis and ultimately from the Latin Angustus, meaning narrow, tight. It's the ancestor of the English anxious, anger, hangnail, and angina. Um, it's a constriction, a tightness that we feel, mental. Whenever we get anxious about something, it's like our being gets closed off. We're not open, we're not free, we're tightened. Something happens emotionally, mentally. I believe that that's a, a, a more intense, more painful kind of suffering than physical pain. 
what most of us are in emotional pain, it's about we lose somebody or we break up in a romance. And I think spiritual torment, torment is a, a graver kind of pain. And I think it's greater because usually in spiritual torment, um, the pain is caused by, by some kind of abuse where somebody uses us or torments us. We feel that somebody manipulating, that somebody's doing something with us. There's a, there's a quality of humiliation and shame and degradation that's spiritual that goes much deeper than that because we're being used, we're being degraded, made, made into something lower than we are. How does this apply to Odysseus, long-suffering Odysseus? I love this part of it. The word suffer is from the Anglo-French, the Norman, souffrir, the French, souffrir. And that word is ultimately from the Latin suffere, suffere. Literally, suffere means to carry up from underneath, to carry up from underneath, suffere, to carry up. To carry up or to bear, to bear up, to carry up from underneath. It means to sustain or to bear. And it's from the word, get this, fair, F-E-R-R-E, fede, fair, fede, to carry. It's the source of our English, fertile, fertile. I love this part of it. We in the modern world think of suffering as completely an evil. It's bad. We want to do everything we can to avoid suffering. The Christian world calls us to it. Here's what a French philosopher, Louis Lavelle, had to say. In reality, we suffer only in our relation with others. The possibility of suffering measures the intimacy and the intensity of the bonds which unite us to another being. We do not suffer in our relations with those who are indifferent. In fact, indifference in some sense protects us against suffering. Remember the lotus eaters. Take this, it will make you forget home. Helen says, take this, heart's ease. It will make you forget your mother and your father if you take it, even, even if they die. Who would want to forget their mother and father when they're dying? Her answer to pain is to take this so that you, you don't suffer, right? So how, I mean, what would happen to it? Think about the importance of this. The book begins with Zeus um, describing the other gods, what happens when Agisthos kills Clytemnestra. Orestes is so upset that his father was killed treacherously that he kills his father. Mother. Or, sorry, his mother takes vengeance for his father. What would he, what would he have done if he'd taken that medicine? That hangs over Telemachus, the whole, the whole book, because he keeps wondering, can I do what's asked of me? Am I going to be able to perform something hard when it comes time? Or will the drugs make me oblivious of it? So this whole question of the importance of suffering. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. That's, that is who he is. Um, and there are all these temptations of the book to try to take suffering away to make things easier for people. Um, the Lotus Eaters, Helen, and others. Um, 
When indifference ceases, our capacity for suffering returns and is proportionate to our interest in and our affection for another. We suffer with one another. Marriages are hard. I'm assuming we all know that, that um, people who think that everything should be easier are um, not in a real world. It emerges as soon as the bonds which unite us to the other are threatened. It is then that the bonds of friendship testify to their existence and their depth. The test of our friendship, our ties with each other, is our fidelity to each other when things are not easy. Um, it's, Im it's impossible not to seek for the reasons for my suffering, not to try to make sense of it. We try to do this all the time. Okay? So often in our modern world, I think we have a little help for it because the modern answer is take a pill. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what's profound about Lavelle's thinking on this, and I, I think why it's such an important note on the Odyssey. We are told that in pain, we pass to a lesser degree of perfection. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. We have an awareness of what we have just lost. We know that at one point we had something and now no longer have it. A husband, a wife, a child, a job, a career, an arm, whatever it will be. We had something and now we know, we're aware that we don't, we've lost something. Treasured object. But the very awareness of this loss introduces in us, as has always been held, a growth of consciousness which is itself not a loss. Consequently, there is born in us a new being, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. When Odysseus calls to mind, when he tells his stories about all that he's gone through, that is a new being, a birth of consciousness. Whenever we tell a story, we recover. The question is, remember, in Ithaca, the problem is the stories they tell are all in the past. What's wrong with these homes is people cannot, they cannot get out of the past. They, they're, they're trapped in the suffering of their losses. So the question is, will they come into the present? Can they come into the present? It's so happy. Consequently, there's born in us a new being, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. My spontaneity is curved, it's true, but my reflection and my will come into play to compensate for what has been taken away from me. My activity, which has been taken up to this point instinctive, has now become spiritual. Our wills, our minds change. I, I, I myself can make no sense of Christ saying, when a seed falls to the ground, pick up your cross, die, a new birth. I mean, I, either it means this or it means nothing. That when, you, when we make a conversion, we, we know that we're entering into a next life, even if it means that that conversion is ongoing in the suffering we endure over the course of our life. Um, my activity, which has been up to this point instinctive, has now become spiritual. The use that I make of it will depend upon me alone. It will be up to me to decide whether or not this loss can be converted into a gain. Will we continue to grieve for it, or will we ever reach a point of saying thanks? So the, the suffering and the consciousness about it is right at the heart of the story. Odysseus is long suffering. The center of the novel is the, the epic, is this point in which he tells his stories about himself. It 
seems to me this is the condition for getting home. If he doesn't do this, he remains in the past. And, and the, the question is now, what does he learn from these adventures? What are, what are, if this is what's beneath the surface, what is it that's there? What are we learning about our human nature that he learns in order to get home? So let me, let me turn to the adventures just very briefly. I want to, um, um, we don't have time to go into them at all. I, I want to really just single out um, a couple, um, Calypso, Cyclops, Circe, um, are the major ones that I want to look at tonight, but just a couple of things to get us going. Um, when he first leaves Troy, his first adventure is with the Caconians and he's a sacred city. That's what he's called. T -t Take a look at chapter, uh, book 9, line 39. What page? 138, page 138, middle of the page. From Ilion the wind took me and drove me ashore at Ismasros by the Caconians. I sacked their city and killed their people, and out of the city taking their wives and many. He's doing what he's been doing for 10 years. So, big surprise. Um, when you've been killing for 10 years, um, what else are you going to do? He goes on to the lotus eaters and meets them, and they have these lotus plants. The lotus eaters offer them these plants, saying that if you take these, you will forget your way home. They're, they're a drug of forgetfulness. They will help you um, relieve yourself of your sorrows. Um, and then you come to the Cyclops, the Aeolus is the bank of winds, the Lestrigones. Interesting, um, in book 10, line 80, I'm just going to pass, I'm not going to, I want to focus on some others, so I'm not going to, let's see, book 10. Um, what page is that? 154. Um, line, one, page 154. They come to the Lestrigones. Um, um, on page 155, about line 113, but when they entered the glorious house, they found there a woman as big as a mountain peak, and the sight of her filled them with horror. At once she summoned famous Antiphates, her husband, from their assembly, and he devised dismal deaths against him. He snatched up one of my companions and prepared him for dinner, but the other two darted away in flight. Go down, the king raised the cry, um, the powerful Strigones came swarming, tens of thousands of them, not like men, like giants. These standing along the cliffs pelted my men with man-sized man boulders. They speared them like fish, carried them away for their joyless feasting. So. They meet this bestial people, and at the center of them is this woman who's larger than a mountain. Now just hold on to that image for a while. Larger than a mountain. Whatever that means right now, but larger than a mountain. 
Um, and then Circe, Camerians is the land of the dead. The sirens are the singers. Uh, he has to pass by the sirens and the, the music is so enchanting, so overpowering um, that men are drawn to it and can't, can't turn away from it. So the shore is strewn with skulls and the bodies of men who have died listening to her music. And then he has to pass between um, um, two forms of danger, Seal and Charybdis, and then he comes to the island of Thrinakia where he, he and his men are told not to eat the cattle of Helios, the sun god. The men are famished, they get stormbound there, and finally they, they eat through their own storage and have, well, they're actually faced with a choice. They can starve to death or disobey the gods. That's the choice. And they, I mean, it, it's really important to see that. They disobey the gods, they die. And it's from there that Odysseus goes to Pagesia and tells his story, and then from here he'll come home. Okay. So what I'd like to do um, just in the brief time that we have is go back to the very beginning of um, the time when he arrives on uh, page 102, when he arrives at Scaria. He's freed from Calypso's island. He is set off at sea. He crashes and almost dies. And interesting, remember what Telemachus said when he met with Mentes. Oh, if my dad had only been a hero and died in Troy. When, it, when Achilles was faced with being swamped by the river Xanthos, do you remember he said, said, what a humiliating death. It would have been better for me to die in a field of battle. Telemachus, Odysseus, Achilles, all of them, the great dread is not to die in a heroic act, to be killed in an accident, to be over, overcome by nature. He does manage to get ashore and sleeps overnight, and in the morning, Nausicaa and her maids come and discover him. They are taken by his beauty, his nobility. He looks like a god to them. On page 109, in the middle of the page, there they were fined down to their oar blades, for the Phaeacians have no concern with the bow or the quiver, but it's all masts and the oars of ships and the balanced vessels themselves in which they delight in crossing over the gray sea. And it is their graceless speech, I think, from, from for fear one may mock us hereafter, since there are insolent men in our community. See how one of the worst sort might say that if she's afraid that somebody might shame her if she goes into town with a discus. Their sense of manners are so fine. The ships um, are balanced vessels. They delight crossing the gray sea. Um, that's a, a point that will be made again and again and again. Odysseus will come to um, Alcinous's palace and supplicate the king um, and um, on page 116, the king tells his men when they receive this stranger, hear me, leaders of the Phaeacians and men of council, will I speak forth what the heart within my breast urges? Now having feasted, go home, take your rest. Tomorrow at dawn we shall call the elders in and we will do this. And after that we shall think of conveyance and how our guest 
without annoyance or hardship may come again, convoyed by us to his own country in happiness and speed, even though it lies very far off and on the way between suffer no pain or evil. Repeatedly, we will get passages like this that are actually even clearer. Their ships go across the sea as thought. Now think about the technology advancement of that, that their ships are so advanced they can pass over the sea the way thought moves over matter. Almost like it's not impeded. With no fear of harm coming to them. Okay, that's repeated again and again. Odysseus tells that he's just come from Ogesia and um, they call an assembly, give a feast. Demodocus, who is the poet on page 123, begins to sing stories of the Trojan War. Odysseus is moved to tears. And when they see, when Alphonsus <coughs> sees that, he stops the, the story out of concern for his guest, and they, they um, play games, Olympic games, contests and dancing. One of the men, Eurelius, insults Odysseus on page 20, 127, challenges him, because Odysseus is this old-looking guy, and um, they're being really rude to a stranger, and Odysseus actually ends up defeating him in a contest. Page 128, 129, Demodocus returns to his stories, and he tells the story of um, Ares' um, adulterous affair with Aphrodite, and the way in which Hephaestus, who is Aphrodite's husband, uses his craft to trap the couple and chain them so they can't get free. Um, go, go to the bottom of 129. This is so funny. Now, think about this. Think about this. Demodocus has given us what Homer gives us. He gives us a tragedy, tells the story of the Trojan War, and here he gives us a comedy. It's exactly what Homer gives us. Tragedy in Iliad, comedy here in the Odyssey. Um, Demodocus has, has sung the story. This is like Homer, sitting in a community, singing his song. Um, I think this is a, Apollo. Um, no virtue in bad dealing. See the slow one is overtaking the swift is now. I think this is Poseidon. Um, see, the slow one has overtaken the swift as now slow Hephaestus has overtaken Ares. Swifties of all the god and Olympus by artifice. It was by artifice that um, Demodocus passed Menelaus. Homer is so clear on the importance of art, of using skill to do something everywhere in his world, making things, being wise. Um, putting to good use your mind. Remember, Odysseus is a man of many ways. Artifice, skill, wisdom, prudence are all part of that same thing. Though he was lame, and Ares must pay the adulterous damage. This was the way of the gods as they conversed with each other. But the Lord Apollo, son of Zeus, said a word to Hermes. Hermes, son of Zeus, guide and giver of good things, tell me, would you, caught tight in these strong fastenings, be willing to sleep in bed by the side of Aphrodite, the golden? <laughs> the gods have a sense of humor. Then in turn the courtier, Agrifonte's answer, Lord, who strike from afar Apollo, I wish it could only be 
and there could be thrice this number of endless fastenings, and all you gods could be looking on and all the goddesses, and still I would sleep by the side of Aphrodite the golden. Um, um, Poseidon offers to pay Hephaestus money to set Ares free, and he refuses. He says that would be a bad deal. And then finally Poseidon says, um, if Ares doesn't pay you the money, I will. And it's only an agreement then that he, he undoes the chains. It's interesting here. All of this is funny. It's the gods doing what human... But it's really interesting in one other respect, too. There's a debt to be paid for adultery. There's a ransom in heaven. I can't think about that without thinking. The son knew that he was going to be Christ. He's going to be crucified. A debt was paid. Adam fell. There's no debt on the gods. The gods didn't fall. But somehow Christ, God foresaw everything. It's like he didn't see anything. He's outside of time. So, but even the gods have this sense of a lawfulness, that a debt, that they're, you can't ignore a law. That when a law is broken, it has to be paid. Um, at the top of 131, when the dancers dance, once again, think about this. Um, at the bottom of 130, at the top of 131, they threw the ball up in the air, a beautiful thing, red, which Polybos, the skillful craftsman, had made the, one of them bending far back would throw it up to the shadowy clouds, and the other going high off the ground would easily catch it again before his, keep, his feet came back to the ground. Go down, wonder takes me as I look at them. It's as if they defy gravity, that their art is so advanced that they do these things with such ease that the laws of nature almost, it's not that they're suspended, but, but they certainly have a mastery over things here in the way that they do things. Um, they return, Demodocus picks up the Trojan story again, and on page 135, Alcinous again sees that Odysseus is weeping and asks him to identify himself finally at the bottom of 135. Tell me your land, your neighborhood, so that our ships strain. Tell me your land, your neighborhood, and your city, so that our ships straining with their own purpose can carry you there. For there are no steersmen among the Phaeacians, neither are there any steering oars for them, such as other ships have. But the ships themselves understand men's thoughts and purposes, and they know all the cities of men, all their fertile fields, and with greatest speed they cross the gulf of the salt sea, huddled under a mist and cloud, nor is there ever any fear that they may suffer damage or come to destruction. So tell us and we can convey you home without fear. Bottom page 137, I am Odysseus, son of Laertes. He identifies himself, comes out. Um, and then he tells the story. Now, we're out of time. I want to just um, a couple of things here. Oops. and Circe, if we have time, or um, <coughs> the Calypso, Cyclops, and Circe, we may not, but 
the sea, all of these adventures occur at sea. Jung, um, Freud's colleague, um, who eventually parted company with Freud over serious differences between them, Jung saw the sea as an image of the unconscious, the infinite, the ever-changing, always changing and in flux, and yet always the same. It's an image of change and flux um, in the face of permanence. The sea's not man's home. It's a place of danger and peril. Man's home is in the land. That's where he belongs properly. And yet if he doesn't venture the sea, land becomes sterile and deadly. We know that from what happens to Pylos and Sparta. Something's missing. Odysseus is showing that there was something we were meant to confront in our lives, and the sea is an image of it. The Odyssey, the, almost the whole of the Odyssey takes place at sea. The Commedia, the Divine Comedy, um, in the, when Dante begins the Paradiso, the image of entering paradise is a ship sailing into sea. And Dante says at the beginning of the Paradiso, be careful um, those of you who begin this journey with me now, because it would be wiser to turn back because you're going to face real perils going forward, because he's entering a world of faith. It's beyond the rational mind and all of our powers to control things. We enter into mysteries. Um, the Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest, The Winter's Tale, Twelfth Night, all Kurt C. Moby Dick is one of the greatest sea stories ever told. The sea is, um, I think, an image of grace. It's also, in some sense, it, it's an image of the irrational, all that's beyond reason. Um, Athena is never with Odysseus at sea. Remember, she, she's with him always. The sea is where Odysseus has to face things below the surface, things we, in Plato's cave, it's beneath the appearances of things. We have to learn to see the things we don't see. Paradoxical. Um, she, she helps him when, his, when he lands at um, Scaria. She helps him with insights, but she's not present as a creature. When he lands, she takes on the appearance of a girl and comes to him. That's once he lands. But is, uh, wasn't, she, uh, goes, wasn't she at sea with Telemachus? With Mentor. Huh? As Mentor. Oh, yeah. as Mentor, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, and she's a useful shepherd, a youthful shepherd when he comes to Ithaca when he returns home. So in some sense, it's, a, it's an uneasy place. Athena still is watching over clearly, but that's not her home. The, the sea is an image of something mysterious, something shifting, hard to get over. Remember the old man of the sea when Menelaus captured him? Eudothea um, said uh, to Menelaus, he will change shapes. And the description of it was, all things come from the sea, bears, trees, lions, everything, cliffs. It's the source of all things. So all things come from the sea, all things return. So the, the sea is an image of, in some sense, being in all of its multiplicity, its shifting forms. It's life. Huh? It's life. Well, yeah. Yes, the undercurrent of everything in life, yes. Um, um, in each of the places that Odysseus goes to, the major places, they're all described as in caves or grottos or fog or clouds or far away from men where no men visits. The Cyclops are removed. Nobody comes close to them. The Scarians, the Phaeacians, are far away. 
when Odysseus comes, he's a stranger to them. They're not used to people being there. So every one of these places belongs to an unfamiliar world. It's not a part of the familiar world that we, we know through our senses on land. Um, I want to take um, Circe in the in early on in the book is described as being on the island of Egesia, which is the navel of the sea. It's an umbilical cord. Circe, sorry, Calypso offers Odysseus immortality. So she seems to be some link to the divine, that, that image of the navel, the umbilical cord of the divine. Calypso offers Odysseus immortality. He's there for eight years. He, she poses the gravest threat to Odysseus. Whatever she is, is a woman. Circe is that aspect of woman re which reduces man to a sexual animal aspect. She has him for a year. All the men are turned into swines. He has sex with her. Hermes says even, have to go to bed with her for a year, or go to bed. But he doesn't let her have command over her. He uses the molly to say, show this to her, make her promise you. So in those two images of women, and both of them are removed, and both of them live in caverns and caves. And I'm going to come to that in a second. Both of them represent aspects of women, something feminine, who has tremendous power and possible control over Odysseus. The Cyclops are removed. Um, often they're caves as well. All of these are cave people. I'm going to wait till we come to this next week to open this up to you because it's pretty amazing what's going on. But right now I want to just look at the Cyclops. Turn to page 140 and we'll, we're going to look at this in this. Page 140, he says, We just came to the Cyclops, who, putting all their trust in the immortal gods, neither plow with their hands nor plant anything, but all grows for them without seed planting, without cultivation, wheat or barley, and also the grapevines, which yield for them wine of strength. And it is Zeus's rain that waters for them. Zeus's rain that provides for them. <clears throat> they don't do anything. The Cyclops who put all their trust in the world. That seems to me on the surface, that seems like a flattering thing to say. I think Homer means it in this sense, let God do it. God will take care of it for us. So it seems to me what it's saying is there's a serious presumption on their part. They take the gods for granted. And we're going to see that that, in fact, is what happens. I thought they were all Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, I don't want to get you started. You don't have time. You don't have time. But in case there's a question, I couldn't agree with you more right now, Bob. I don't want to go there, but that's what I want. I, read I don't want to get started. I, I don't want to get started. I don't want to get started. Um, Odysseus describes right off the right off the island where the cyclops are. There's another little island that's fertile that would produce abundant food, and they make no effort to get there. There are people whose basic attitude is God will take care of it. So they don't do anything. Um, I don't think that's just Democrat. I'm not going to even give the other one. Be still. Don't, don't tempt me right now, Robert. Um, I'm sorry. No, no. Um, Odysseus chooses his men, and they go into the cave. And on page 144, the Cyclops comes in, closes the cave, Cyclops says in the middle of 
144. So I spoke, but he answered me in pitiless spirit. Stranger, you are a simple fool or come from far off when you tell me to avoid the wrath of the gods because of this. It says, I'm a guest. You should be hospitable because the, remember, the rights of hospitality are when a stranger comes to your house, you have to be respectful because that may be a god. So you have to take care. And we've been seeing that in every home we visited. Except the Cyclops says, not for us. The Cyclops do not concern themselves over Zeus of the Aegis nor any of the rest of the blessed gods, since we are far better than they. And for fear of the hate of Zeus, I would not spare you or companions either if the fancy took me otherwise. But tell me, says, who are you? Tell me about you. You know that um, Odysseus will say, my name is nobody, the bottom 146. Cyclops, you ask me for my famous name, I will tell you. But you must give me a guest gift as you promised. Nobody is my name. My father and mother call me nobody, as do all the others who are my companions. Now, he gets the Cyclops drunk. You know the story. And when he's in a stupor, he has he, his men get this beam, and they sharpen it and put it in the fire to temper it. And then they, he tells the men, have courage, top of 147, I brought it close from the fire, and my friends about me stood fast. Some great divinity breathed courage into us. They seized, by the way, I just read this to my granddaughter on the phone. Oh, Her, my, our, our middle son <laughs> is teaching the Odyssey, and he was, I tell our kids stories when they stay the night, when our grandchildren stay. The kids, if they didn't go, truly, I mean, it's a sort of a ritual in so our, they I, landed in Cyclops' house. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. That's a great and, bedtime story. Oh, okay, yeah. all the kids, it's really funny because over years, I, I mean, it's, they won't go to bed without a story now. They just want, and, and I will not fail to describe some blood and gore in somewhere. Um, and a couple of funny, I shouldn't do this, it's too late, but my youngest son, Jonathan, who's, sons are the ones who spent the most time with us at our house, staying over. So we've had stories forever. And, and um, at some point, I guess when they were four or five or six, or, and they had years of stories behind them, they went to bed at their house and asked their dad, our son Jonathan, to tell us a story. And Jonathan started to tell them the story. And they all hooted him and said, no, that's not a way to tell a story. That is the way to tell. Tell it the way Papoot, you know. It was really funny. He was so embarrassed, he stopped. <laughs> Our middle son is teaching at Ave Maria in Florida, and and he was telling Sienna, their oldest, how old is Sienna? Nine. Nine, about the Odyssey. And it, I'd forgotten, the last time they were here and spent the night, I was telling a story. I don't tell, I don't tell these stories. I, I usually tell stories that involve kids with their names in it. So they can, but I, I always bring things in to, you know, juice it up some and make it adventurous and scary and, you know, if somebody's going to get out of trouble or who's in danger. And they're very often helping their parents who are in danger. I mean, those are the... But in this one story that I told Sienna and Charlotte and Liam and, and Lincoln, whoever was there, had this part from the Odyssey in it, you know, where they stick the beam in, in the Cyclops' eye. And I got it in there and I forgot that I worked in this little piece, and I, I talked with Sienna and thanked her for her gift that she sent a couple weeks ago. Was talking, she said her dad was going to give her the book and she was going to read it. And I got so inspired that I went to the book, she's nine, and I read this passage to her, just enjoying it because it is so vivid. And 
And I asked her what her response was. She loved it too. She said, he's so concrete. He just makes you feel like you're, you know, like you're there. Um, this was a nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be the nine-year-old in me, I guess. <laughs> um, some divinity breathed courage into us. They seized the beam of olive sharp at the end and leaned on it into the eye. I got all of this. I just leaned on it in the eye. While I from above, leaning my weight on it, twirled it like a man with a brace and bit who bores into a sharp timber. His men from underneath, grasping the strap on either side, whirled it, and it bites resolutely deeper. So seizing the fire point hardened timber, we twirled it into his eye, and the blood boiled around the hot point so that the blast and scorch of the burning ball singed all of his eyebrows and eyelids and the fire made the, made the roots of his eye crackle. <laughs> I love that passage. Okay, let me, let me stop. I've got Here, Plato will say after this, here's my question to leave you with for next week. And this is gonna be serious. It's not an assignment, but, but I really would like you to, here's my contention. Everything that Odysseus, I, I will uncover this. You know what Calypso means? The word Calypso, apocalypse. Oh. Apocalypse, Calypse. The word Calypso means hidden, concealed. Apocalypse means revealed, brought out. Calypso keeps Odysseus concealed. In some sense, she is one of the greatest threats because what is a man supposed to do in this world? achieve his pleos, to come out. Remember the heroes, whenever they were frightened, they went back into the swarm, and when they go into the swarm, they're nameless. It's an undifferentiated mess. A hero has to be named to come out. Even when they die, every man in Homer dies, he's named to be who he is. Calypso is that in a woman which so tempts a man to stay with her, concealed, so he doesn't come out. So here's what I'm asking. Take a look at every one of the episodes and see if you can find them at home. If, if this is the underworld, we should encounter it in everything that happens once he gets home. Particularly the feminine things, whether it's in the maidservants or, or uh, Penelope, wherever it is. Or in the men, in the, in the suitors. Um, he, remember, he, it's, he learned the, the, the man of many ways who traveled far distances, learned the cities of many men before he could come home. So if these things have any meaning, presumably it's to help him deal with those things once he gets home because he understands their nature, what they are. So my question to you, I mean, it's a, I really, I really would love to hear what you do. And when you finish the reading in the next couple of weeks, ask yourself, we still have to go through these, because my guess is they're probably not a lot clear, but they'll get clear as we go through them. But just now, if you trust me on this, take a look at them and see if you can find some of the, the Lestrigonese woman, as large as a mountain, the, the thousands of men swarming, killing them, eating them, sticking them like fish. Um, see if you can find these people at home. The Cyclops, you know, picked up, dashed these men to the ground, ate them. When he gets drunk, body parts are googling out of him, drooling out of him. He eats flesh. He eats men. He eats men. 
The Lestrigonides devoured men. The lotus plants kept some of the men. I mean, over and over again, Odysseus is constantly faced with the prospect of not getting home, and he loses men over and over until they're all the fools, Napium. The people who could not read, who could not read, did not get home. So where do we find these? Now just here's here's Plato's image of the soul, and I this is based on Homer. If you read, the soul has a rational part. We learn this from the Iliad, right? The, the Achaean gods defeated the Trojans. It was the ra the rational over the appetitive, the appetites, the cognitive over the passionate, cognition over passion. Athena defeated Ares and Aphrodite. Hera defeated um, Artemis. The human soul, as Plato describes it, and it seems to me he takes this from Homer so we can apply this, there's the rational part of man and the appetitive, the appetites. And the appetites take two forms, towards the noble things that man approaches in anger, about his honor or beauty or truth or those things that are um, less material. And the appetites is they're directed towards material things, sex, food. I'm supposing by now you, you come across that line of Homer's, the ravenous belly, the, what are some of the other terms of the ravenous belly, the over, overbearing belly, the stomach, you know, the, our appetites for food and drink. What are the suitors doing all the time? Eating. Eating. So there are the appetites for food. There's this appetite or desire. Um, Plato called it, the Greeks would have called it thumos, anger. It's, it's, the, it's the passion for those things that are noble, um, to, to deal with those things that threaten our getting to them, truth, beauty, honor higher things in life. Um, where, where, is the, where are the cyclops in this? They have one eye. It's fairly clear, isn't it, where the cyclops are? I mean, it's a, they're very narrow in their vision, very literal. If you look at it, they, they take the gods for granted. They say the gods will do everything. I can, I mean, if you, I'm going to say it. That's a fundamentalist position. Let God do it. It takes so much for granted. Um, and is, is, is how much pride is concealed in that? I don't want to, you know, it's just, with the Cyclops, it's, it's obvious. But the Cyclops have one eye, so they have a narrow funnel vision. They see only on one level. When Odysseus says, my name is nobody, and the Cyclops starts screaming after his eyes poked out, the, the other Cyclops come along and say, who's hurting you? And Polyphemus says, I'm going to go through this next week because there's extraordinary puns going on there. I don't want to do it tonight, but... Polyphemus says, nobody's hurting me. <laughs> so, <laughs> how much more literal minded can you get? They don't see very well. They don't read very well. They're driven by their appetites in one or two directions, you know, these people. So, when you read this week, take a look at the fem particularly the feminine, Lestrigonis Queen, Circe, Calypso. The sirens are feminine. Skill and Charybdis are feminine. Um, take a look at those and see what you make of them as images of something that Odysseus has got to encounter at home. Wait, okay, wait, so wait, 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 and wait, and, and then keep this in mind and ask, 
where is he, what is he going to encounter in men at home? Um, um, like, the, like the Cyclops, as a masculine, because those are masculine, brutal masculine creatures. Um, where does he meet those? And what has he learned from his voyages in what he's going to do when he does get home and dealing with them? So, um, Homer is a man who didn't like women, so what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right there. I don't think so. He liked Penelope. If, if, if you say that, then you have to say he didn't like men in the Iliad. I think Homer was really actually a profound He's person. He's like, women all bad. Well, no. I'll say one thing. You see the to an incident that happened to me some, some years ago. I've been driving all, all night with my daughter, and we, we came into the my daughter was standing on the end of the, the counter and I'd given the lady my credit card and she took it, she swaps it and then she gave me a paper to sign. And I don't know why, I just had this strange feel that she looked rather weird and strange and uh, she had her hair sort of going out in different directions and I signed it anonymous. <laughs> this lady picked up the, the thing and she says, oh my God, you're the people who write the letters and the poems. And I said, yes, we've been doing it for hundreds of years. <laughs> My daughter couldn't believe this woman was... How old was your daughter then? Oh, she was, well, she's, uh, she's in her, her 50s. No, then. Well, she was 40, 40, 40 oh, years old. No, no. She said, she's going, oh my God, Dad, don't do this. <laughs> because this lady was enchanted. And so I just carried it on. And I couldn't, you know, and it, it, you know it's, now it makes sense. I mean, it's, you know, People who don't read and the like, and I mean, it was she was holding my my credit card, which had my name on it. Okay, <laughs> and then she because I had signed this, she suddenly that was the answer, and she said, "I've never." Can you? And she asked me for an autograph. I mean, <laughs> I mean she wasn't joking. I mean, yeah. she, this lady was really serious. This is one last word of this to, to try to connect this with what we did last time. Remember Pylos and Sparta. How they line up with Mythica. We've got these human families. That um, one of the things Homer's showing us is that Odysseus has to learn to see beneath the surface of things. He has to learn to get beyond his senses, our eyes and ears, and still pay attention to them. But to see, to use our eyes and ears in order to see what's below things. So there's this whole metaphysical world beneath things that he's presenting in these stories, and. My question for you, for us, for next week is, where do we find these? Do we leave these here in the journeys, or are we being taught something about the human condition that he's got to meet at home? What's the spiritual underworld that we carry all of us around with us? What does it look like? What is it, what are its images? Male and female. Have a good week. I'll see you guys.